0: Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe.
1: It's time for Sorallo Sports Talk with
2: Joe Sorallo.
1: Here we go, Ceralo Sports Talk, live from Radio Row at the Los Angeles Convention Center. It is day three here, ahead of Super Bowl 56. I can't wait for this one. We have incredible interviews all day. Trey Wingo joining the show, former Atlanta Falcons GM, two-time NFL Executive of the Year Thomas Dimitrov will be stopping by, my man Leger Douzable, a reunion in person for the first time in two years. I know you've seen him, you've heard him over our Zoom calls for the past couple of years, but I can't wait. To see my man Leger, all of it will be captured on this show. And make sure you head over to my Instagram at Joe Sorallo for an IG exclusive interview with my man, Ryan Leaf. He's got his new Bust podcast out. That's an interview on my Instagram that you are not going to want to miss. We'll get to tomorrow's Hall of Fame announcement. Five of the 15 finalists will be inducted in the Pro Football Hall of Fame in Canton. Those names will be announced tomorrow. In my final word, I'll give you who I think those five inductees will be. But let's get to Super Bowl 56 to start. You know, it seems like, and I touched on it yesterday, the theme of this game this weekend is going to be talent versus toughness. Now, look, that does not mean that the Los Angeles Rams are not tough. And that does not mean that the Cincinnati Bengals, who feature a slew of top 10 draft picks, are not talented. But the LA Rams, as I mentioned in yesterday's show, are a team that has six to seven Hall of Famers on it, at least three on each side of the ball, and the Bengals are a team that is just too damn young to determine whether or not they have any surefire, no doubt, Hall of Fame locks like the Rams do on it. So what do I mean by toughness? I mean a team that isn't projected for anything. The biggest underdog in the last 25, 30 years to reach the Super Bowl. That takes toughness. We said it yesterday, Jamar Chase, questions coming into the season, if he could catch an NFL football. Well, he went on to have the best rookie year that a wideout has ever had. Joe Burrow in year two, really year one, one and a half because of that ACL tear and MCL tear that kept him out of the second half of last season. Burrow's back. Burrow has shown time after time his toughness this season to rehab from that injury, not only play good football, but get to the Super Bowl as well. But here's the one thing that scares me for Joe Burrow. He is going to be running for his life this weekend. Look, no matter how well he plays, no matter how well Jamar Chase, Joe Mixon play, we all know that the Cincinnati Bengals' weak point on their offense is their offensive line. And the Rams have one of the best front sevens in football, one of the best pass rushers in football, of course highlighted by those two future Hall of Famers, Aaron Donald and Von Miller. And oh, by the way, don't forget Leonard Floyd, who has had an absolute hell of a season in his own right. So Joe Burrow, and by the way, little quick plug, follow me on TikTok at Joe's Best Bets. If you want my betting advice, Joe Burrow over the posted total on his rushing yards might be a pick because he's going to be in a pocket that is going to collapse numerous times on Sunday. And that's what scares me for him because he's had a sensational season. The whole Cincinnati Bengals team has had an amazing season, but their offensive line has not. And you're going up against a great defense, a seasoned defense, a defensive coordinator in Raheem Morris who has been here before, who is incredible at making mid-game adjustments and forming these different schemes on defense that just throw the offensive line for a loop, and when you're doing so with future Hall of Famers, your job gets that much easier. So I'm worried about Joe Burrow. He's not going to have the time in the pocket he would like, not going to have the time in the pocket he had against the Chiefs, that's for sure, and we'll see if he's still able to work his magic, or at least his late-game magic, with a collapsing pocket on Sunday. But Joe Burrow was sacked nine times against the Tennessee Titans in that divisional round, that road game in Nashville, And he won the game. And that was the first time in postseason history a quarterback had been sacked nine times and won the game. And for the Cincinnati Bengals, this has been a year of firsts. He was the first quarterback to get sacked nine times, hit 13, and win a playoff game. He is the first top overall pick to go to a Super Bowl in year two. He is trying to be the first quarterback to win the Heisman Trophy, the College Football National Championship end the Super Bowl in his career. He is trying for the first Super Bowl win in Bengals franchise history in their third appearance, and he already achieved the first playoff win in franchise history in over 30 years. Firsts and breaking trends, breaking bad luck, that doesn't scare Joe Burrow. Aaron Donald might, but Joe Burrow is so used to hearing that things can't be done, won't be done, and doing them anyway. Ohio State didn't want him. He went to LSU, won a national championship. I'm pretty sure the Buckeyes regret that move. So I'm not worried about Joe Burrow. I think he's up for the task. I think about 80% of the Cincinnati Bengals are up for the task. Are the offensive line? Are the offensive linemen up for the task? That's the question mark. That could be what this game comes down to. Because if Burrow gets hit the same way he did against Tennessee, the Bengals are not going to walk out of Super Bowl 56 victorious. If he gets just a little bit of time in the pocket, just a little bit of wiggle room to create with his legs if he has to, well, then it's anyone's ball game, Because Matthew Stafford has shown that as talented as he is, and look, this is a first ballot Hall of Fame quarterback, in my opinion, if he wins the game, definitely a Hall of Fame quarterback, maybe not first ballot, but Hall of Fame quarterback, regardless, Matthew Stafford has shown he's prone to to making a late-game mistake. Got away with it against San Francisco that dropped bomb deep ball interception late in the fourth quarter. So if it's a tight one, advantage Burrow and the Bengals. But can it be a tight one? That's where the Rams' front seven is going to try to make it a blowout, a Denver-Carolina Super Bowl 50 do-over where the quarterback doesn't have to carry the team. And I'm not saying Stafford's going to have a bad game by any stretch of the imagination, I'm just saying it might not come down to him if the defense blows it open early. Seattle versus Denver. Denver versus Carolina. That's what the Rams defense is going to try to do against this weak Bengals offensive line. If Joe Burrow gets time, if Joe Mixon gets holes to run through, if Jamar Chase gets an inch of separation, all of a sudden, this is anyone's ball game. But it all comes down to talent versus toughness. We know the Bengals have toughness. Can their offensive line tough it out? For one more week in the 2021-2022 season, that's what's to be determined. When we come back, former NFL Executive of the Year, former Atlanta Falcons General Manager Thomas Dimitrov kicks us off here day three at Radio Row from the LA Convention Center, so stick with us. Stick with me, Joe Sorallo, right here on Sorallo Sports Talk. We're back here on Serralo Sports Talk. It is day three from Radio Row at the Los Angeles Convention Center ahead of Super Bowl 56. And kicking things off today, it is former Atlanta Falcons GM and two-time exec of the year, Thomas Dimitrov. Thomas, thanks so much for joining the show.
3: Thanks for having me, man. Appreciate
1: it. So, Thomas, most two-time Super Bowl champs and two-time NFL execs of the year would be flying first class to their trip for Radio Row. You came here in an RV. What was that all
3: about? So... Look, last year when I got fired, I was thinking about adventures. I was thinking about professional development. I was thinking about traveling around the country. Bought myself a Sprinter van, jacked it up another three inches. You know, it's a it's a true adventure van. And I just decided to move around the country. Got a chance to meet with 16 general managers, a whole other project we can talk about. We're in the process of trying to figure out how we're going to distribute that. This year, I decided, you know, I love driving. There's such an opportunity to have contemplative times. I brought some activity, brought my snowboard, brought my mountain bike and brought my motocross, did some activities along the way. We, we, uh, we videoed it and some podcasts and just trying to, I'm a big believer in Bracing Life. Look, I was away from my kids for so long. I decided to go the opposite route. Some of the GMs want to get into consulting right away and be an assistant GM. That's not my approach. I have enough experience in this league, almost 30 years, that I didn't have to impress upon everyone that I need to jump right back in in year one, trying to capitalize on experience at this point.
1: All right. So that's a lot to work with right there. I mean, motocross, snowboarding. But let's jump into that project. You and 16 other general managers. Is this a podcast? Is this a video series? What's going on with that? Great question. I thought I set out to do some professional development. I could have gone to
3: Burgundy. I'm a, I love French wine. I could have gone anywhere in the world, although COVID, of course, you know that, that was a tough thing. But I, what I decided was, wait, why don't I jump around and book uh, time with each general manager now that I'm not competition, because most of these guys are really close friends of mine. That's how our league is. Yeah. It's a really odd situation. People think that you're you're like at loggerheads. In today's world, it's not that way. So I, I literally booked time with. I started down down the highway down to Jason Light in Tampa. Went all the way across the southern coast. Mickey Loomis, Steve kime West Sneed, you know John Lynch, all the way up to John Schneider, and across the beach, all the way across the Midwest to the East Coast. Interviewed these guys. We have 45-minute to an hour-and-a-half interviews with these guys about team building, about morale, about diversity. Each one, I asked them to bring an underrepresented rising star to the set. Not all did, but about 10 of them did, and we talked about issues at hand. It was amazing for me professionally developing. We caught it all. We also added a lot of B-roll a la Anthony Bourdain. And, and, you know, restaurants and cool stuff yeah. and activities. And, uh, you know, I just thought we put it together. We're in the process right now of trying to pair and, and sell this. And uh, it's been in the works for about eight months now. By the way, I've never, as a football person, you ask for something and within a week or two it's done. This
1: whole entertainment thing is a little bit different for me. A little trickier, right, doing it yourself the whole way. Yes. So you mentioned one of the names of GMs that you spoke with was Les Need. And let's talk about him, because I think what Les Snead has done in the past few years is brilliant and also incredibly risky. He has mortgaged the future of the LA Rams to go all-in balls to the wall, and it's resulted in two Super Bowl appearances now in four years. What do you think of his approach? Look, Joseph, I continue
3: to call him my, our league, Maverick GM. I mean, now he told me last night I was over there having a glass of wine with him, and I said... We were talking about this very thing, and he said, "Look, Thomas, you set the tone for Maverick GM back with the Julio Jones trade, and we kind of we laughed about it. But this league is not for long. We know that NFL not for long. Mm -hmm. Sitting on your hands, you can't do it. What Les has done with his aggressiveness, his acute focus on making sure that he's spending his time and his resources in an area that he believes. By the way, those of us who have been raised right in this league understand you as a general manager and head coach know your team better than anyone. You might have opinions, I might have opinions." They know what they're looking for. They know that the precariousness of drafting someone in in the first round, it's very uncertain. Why not go and focus on the studs out there and the stars? You might know that they have issues. It might not be the cleanest character people. His line was perfect. You know their warts. And if if they are a person that has, you know, hypothetically fall asleep in a meeting, and they fall asleep in the meeting when you bring them on, That's your bad because you know what you're getting. Mm -hmm. But on the field, you're getting star players with a lot of star power, and that's why they are where they are. And contrary to what everyone believes, he is focusing on the fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh round. I think that is a great way to approach it. It's not going to last forever, you know, but it's a really good Maverick-like way, outside-the-box way of thinking, and that is less sneaky.
1: And, you know, on the defensive side of things, obviously Aaron Donald, Jalen Ramsey, Von Miller, they get all the attention. But it's one of those late round draft picks in Darius Williams who has really stepped up and been a cornerstone of this defense. He doesn't have the notoriety that the other three have, but he's been probably the most underrated piece of this defense all year. And Sneed's killing those late rounds because, let's face it, he doesn't have a first round pick for about a half a decade.
3: Well, he's he is, he is a really diligent you know video watching guy. He's really involved. Some GMs start pulling away from that a little bit. But because he is so focused on those mid-rounds right now, I think that's a real benefit for the organization. Brings in all his people. He's very collaborative. But he really wants to see it. He wants to put his thumb on it. And again, I love that approach. Again, he's not one of those guys just drifting off, being a big shot, looking at the first rounds.
1: Yeah. Now, you mentioned the uncertainty of the draft, even on day one. And look, I love to sit here and mock draft season is one of my favorite times after the Super Bowl. Speculate who's going to go boom, who's going to go bust. Look, uh, you know, every now and then you hit the nail on the head. I was right. I'm a Giants fan. Daniel Jones was not the sixth overall pick that year. But I also thought Josh Allen, the quarterback, stunk coming out of Wyoming. And look at him right now. He's an MVP candidate every year. So there's so much uncertainty. And one argument that I have with people all the time is I know too many damn people that are in favor of tanking. And as a GM, can you please explain to my audience why tanking is never the right decision?
3: Uh, it's, a, it's the worst decision in the world. And I understand from a fan base side, you're like, man, we need to build our team. And I used to hear it all the time when, mm-hmm. when you had your low times, there was a lot of that. There is no way categorically you could as a head coach or a general manager, keep face and, and continue to have those, the faith of your players. If there's any insinuation at all that you're tanking, it's outrageous. It's, it's I hate to say it's anti-American. I'm going to go off. Of it. It's just so not the way that this sport is built. So when I start seeing and hearing some of those 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 uh, ideas and the stories about it, I mean, it hurts my heart. And again, I'm not being melodramatic about it. You put your heart and soul into it, yeah. And to think that you're going to do something like that, it's it's just it's. I'm back on my heels and I'm aghast. Even
1: here, yeah. I mean, look, that 53rd guy on the roster tanking does him no uh, no good. You know, he loses his job if the team tanks, and he might not get another crack. And so that's what I try to explain to people, that tanking is never what these guys are going for. So with that said, what do you make of the allegations about Steven Ross and Brian Flores' lawsuit against the Dolphins, Broncos, Giants, and the league as a whole that he was offering Flores $100,000 per game to lose in his first season?
3: Again, high respect, and I am one of those people that do respect, you know, not only the billionaires, the intelligence within the league from the from a from a leadership standpoint, I'm saying at the very top with mm-hmm. the owners. So it is complicated to see hear this from a businessman who is so successful in a lot of ways, right? And yet you start thinking about it, and you start hearing about these allegations, and you want more. Like I want to read more. I want to really dig in to see if this is if this is real. If it's real, then we have a whole other situation. I've had people call me since all of this is sort of uh, unearth all of this, and they're saying, Thomas, like, I'm ready to pull away from this league right now. I cannot believe. Do you have insight? You've been around this league for 30 years and 12, 13 as a GM. Did you ever have that? Absolutely never had that. Arthur Blank, I was very fortunate. I mean, sure, I, I have a great relationship with Arthur. Didn't mm. like getting fired I wasn't expecting necessarily <laughs> to get fired.
1: Not in week six, at least.
3: No, Well, that, that's exactly right. But that's a whole other story. Another yeah. time, get me on another pot. But I think Arthur was so damn competitive, and I had Mike Smith, who was wildly competitive in my first go-around, and Dan Quinn, there was no way we were even, we weren't even looking that up on a, you know, on a board and saying, okay, here's, some, here's a topic to talk about. So I was very fortunate that I never had to deal with it, and I, I feel bad for the people that would ever have to even touch on something like that.
1: Well, so I have to ask you about the other end of this lawsuit, that not only the tanking, but of course the discrimination and the lack of diversity in the NFL, as a GM, as someone in charge of hiring head coaches, or at least you were for, what, 12 years? I mean, how serious of a problem is this to you? It's a problem.
3: I mean, I did like, and I have a really good relationship with, um, with Rod Graves, with the Fritz Pollard Alliance. I think Rod and I have parallels because our dads are both longtime scouts. We were both executives coming up and, and, and GMs. Rod is a fascinating guy, and he's doing a really good job by putting forth the people that are ready. Project-wise and principle-wise and approach, if you're just randomly throwing out a whole bunch of names, it's not going to work. And Rod does a really good job of being calculated. You saw what happened this year with the general manager, so I'm going to stay there for one second. Yeah. They did a really good job. We're nearing where it should be, I think closer to a third. Who knows the number? I think it's really important that really good sound people are in there, You know, whether they're underrepresented and minority or people of color or whether or whether they're, they're you know, uh, Caucasian. It doesn't, to me, let's get the best people in there, and, and Rod came to the table and helped get some really good people in those spots, which is great. Now, flip it. Mm-hmm. We start looking at the head coaching thing, and prior to, to Lovey getting hired, which is great for Lovey, I'm glad he's getting, is it a third chance now? I think it's a third yeah, chance. Yeah, third chance. Which, by the way, it's another topic, because GMs hardly get a second chance, which we can talk about Very ad- true, nause- very we true. talk nauseum about that. That said, these, the, the, the one or two... African-American general managers in the league that is complicated and it's it's dicey and it's unnerving for us who are really interested in making sure that we are doing the right things and we are evolving as a league and I'm I'm still back on my heels to think we only have two people of color literally in you know in the NFL I mean Sala, I understand he's a minority hire but the yeah, African- there's
1: Rivera, there's Salah, sure. McDaniel
3: and uh, yeah, McDaniel. with the Miami yes. Dolphins. That caught yes. a lot of people off guard. When we come back to African-American, however, and, yeah. and what we're talking about with the Fritz Pollard Alliance, which, again, covers all, all, all uh, levels of it, I just think we need to continue to do our spot and really make sure. I'm a big pipeline guy, too. Mm-hmm. I'm a pipeline guy on the, on the GM side, and I'm not just talking about pipeline hiring a, hiring a, a, a former player and put them three-quarters of the way through the process. Pipeline, I believe. Make sure you're starting those guys in the coordinator role, offensive coordinator role. Start them young. Yeah. Get them in the literal pipeline because they start making relationships along the way with form, With eventual GMs, they get into the assistant GM spot. On the coaching side, you get that strong offensive mind who has been in that pipeline. Man, they're ready to take it over, and I think that's is very important. I know we get a little impatient, mm-hmm. but while we're getting impatient, keep work in that pipeline, and, and there's got to be a
1: creative way to do it. Well, I'm hoping the pipeline pays off for guys like Byron Leftwich, Eric bien and and so many more. Thomas, before we wrap it up, we are here for Super Bowl 56, and looking structurally at the way that the Rams and Bengals were built, these two teams could not be any more different. We talked about Les need, selling it all, giving away all his draft picks to go get guys like Von Miller, go get Odell, Stafford. Then you've got the Bengals, who built completely through the draft, and then they signed some of those B-list free agents, the Trey Hendricksons, the Eli Apples. Well, who does it pay up, uh, Who does it pay off for this weekend?
3: Well, you know, look, I'm a I'm a big fan of how Les is approaching things. Not necessarily would I trade away the first rounders as he's done, mm-hmm. but they've been creative, as I alluded to earlier, knowing the organization. What Duke Tobin has done as the you know he's de facto GM there, he should have so many GM opportunities. He was raised in a really good football family, and that is their approach, right? He came up through the draft. Be smart. That is that organization financially very different than the approach. It's really going to be interesting. I think the difference maker there and what's going to differentiate is Les and Sean have been there before. I Les and I talked about this when you're a GM and you lose, you're there the first time. We both have lost Super Bowls. Yeah you're there the first time and you' there's a little bit of just happy to be there. As odd as that sounds, you're, yeah, you focus, you want to win. This time, they are focused. Sean has been outspoken. He does not want to get his butt kicked in you know Sean's a great coach. He right. went head to head with Bill. That was a tough deal. He's ready to go head to head with someone else who is a little closer to his experience and age-wise. And
1: uh, I think the way that the Rams are going to approach this, I just have to give him the the nod. There it is from the two-time NFL Executive of the Year himself. Thomas, thanks so much for joining the show. I appreciate it, Justin. We'll be right back here on Serralo Sports Talk. We're back here on Serralo Sports Talk. And next up on the show, he is a favorite of mine. We're nearing 10 episodes with you on it. It's
0: been that many? It's
1: been, I mean, between hey, virtual and five radio rows over the years. That's
0: right. That's right. Yeah. My man,
1: former Jets D-lineman, current media guru, SNY, <laughs> NFL Network, CBS. It's LeJay Doosable, man. It's great to have you on.
0: It's good to be here, Jay, man. How's your LA trip been so far?
1: It's been good. It's been good. You know, that beautiful lady producing all these segments. I see I'm it. out here yeah. visiting her. Hey, and That's uh, a win-win for you. <laughs> I've got no complaints, <laughs> man. This is the first
0: time I've seen you in two years. COVID,
1: man. Wild. I see you on COVID. Zoom,
0: like, every other yeah, month. Yeah, exactly. Oh. COVID, man. It's, I was actually talking to Jason Romano about that. Like, it's just so crazy that we're two years into this, and we're still dealing with this issue. And um, just giving a back, little bit of background story to what I was talking to him about was, um, you know, in 2019, like, I was playing all these seeds to get ready to take, and me, you know this, you know this, because you kind of know my story, yeah. to take off, and then COVID hit. And, you know, guys weren't hiring when covid hit they were letting people go so it was almost kind of like starting off from square one but i, I wouldn't change it for for anything i've been blessed i mean there pe- people would die to be in the position i'm in right now being able to work for multi- multiple media outlets uh it's been a blessing
1: hey it's part of life man you know i graduated in the middle of the pandemic yeah. job market was hot yeah. all of a sudden it was ice cold but hey it Crazy. makes you tougher
0: 100% man and it makes you Ready for anything, and you know it, it allows people to like start their own projects, kind of like how you did. So, I think that that's something that's unique. Um, there's so much digital work now in media. Like the digital space in media is ridiculous now. Like everybody has their podcast, even ESPN with ESPN Plus. I mean, like every every like channel has a you know a plus channel. So yeah, <coughs> excuse me, sorry about. It the digital space is crazy right now. It absolutely is.
1: So my man, you have been killing it in media lately and you landed before the season started full-time with SNY covering your Jets. We all know, you know, you played for a bunch of teams, but the New York Jets were, that's home for you. How was your first season covering them? I mean, you know, work in progress for the team, rookie QB, rookie head coach, but what was it like covering them and covering a coach you played for in Robert Salah?
0: Yeah, it was great, right? So that made the transition so much easier being able to you know, cover the team with Robert Sala going there, and I thought that was an amazing hire. You know, by Woody Johnson and Chris Johnson. I, I love Sala. Anybody that knows me knows I love Sala and what he brings to the table. And you say it. It's, it's a young team, a um, lot a lot of room to grow. Um, but I think the foundational pieces are there. Um, I can see this team making big strides next year. Um, you know, a young quarterback has to come along, but you got a guy like Michael Carter who I think can be you know a starting running back for them, and, and he's proven that. When he was healthy, Elijah Moore has the potential to be a really good receiver on the outside. The offensive line, everybody thought was going to be the weakness. They actually played well. George Fenton, to me, had a Pro Bowl-type year at left tackle. We'll see what happens with him and Makai Beckton next year. And on defense, you know, C.J. Mosley, people kind of forgot that this guy was a Pro Bowler. Well, he showed everybody why he's a Pro Bowler. And then, you know, you got guys like John Franklin Myers stepping up. The unfortunate injury, you know, to Carl Lawson. Hopefully he comes back from the Achilles and is 100%. So, this is a young team that down the stretch played really tough. Uh, literally probably should have beat the defending Super Bowl champions and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Yeah, and, um, Lost it at the end of the game. But this is a team that showed fight no matter what their record was. So. And then talking about broadcasting for SNY, it was great. It was like being back in the locker room, being with my guy Willie Colon again, being with Bart Scott. It's just a locker room feel. Um, it's something that I, that I missed, and I'm glad that I was able to get back in you know, the studio this year, as opposed to last year when nobody was essentially in the studio.
1: Yeah, you guys have a great crew, man. It's been a ton of fun to watch. So, you know, you talked about Michael Carter, yeah. right? The starting halfback for the Jets. He'll be entering year two. Zach Wilson, your quarterback. Robert Salah, your head coach. Year yeah. two for them all. Yeah. Elijah Moore. I mean, this is one of the youngest teams. Are they the youngest team it in They might football? be. As
0: far as rookies that have played this year, they're, yeah. they're either number one or number two in the NFL. So,
1: what's the biggest jump
0: you're expecting next season? So, they always say your biggest jump in production and just as a player period is from year one to year two. So mm-hmm. now all these guys got experience. Uh, you would like for some of them to have played the whole season because even Zach Wilson got banged up and missed yep. four games. Michael Carter, I believe, missed four of the five games. Elijah Moore missed like five or six games. So, But the good thing is they got experience this year, right? And that's going to bode well for going into next year. Now the Jets have some work. They probably have some of, if not the most draft capital this year in the NFL. I believe two firsts, two seconds, and two thirds. Um, a lot of cap space. They'll probably even create some more, depending on certain contracts. They can maybe restructure or get rid of. So you know, there's a lot of room for improvement. It'd be real interesting to see with two top ten picks. Um, does somebody try to come up and trade for a quarterback or maybe one of these defensive ends or maybe an offensive lineman? Um, and then you know, that bodes well for the Jets maybe trading back and getting more capital. But at the end of the day, you can't just keep creating and getting draft capital, right? You got to hit on your picks. You got to hit on free agency. And I think that's where Joe D, especially in free agency, will come along this year because, you know, you got Corey Davis. Corey Davis got banged up at the end of the year. He was hurt. Um, Jared Davis, another guy he brought in, banged up hurt. Carl Lawson hurt. Yeah. So um, if you want to have success, yes, you got to hit on your draft picks, but their top free agents have to hit too. So um, I think that's something the that Jets are really going to look at hard this year, knowing that if they can have a class similar to what they had last year with the production from their rookie players. Then, you know, they can really take another step into the, Potentially being like San Francisco, or even this Bengals team was this year.
1: Yeah, I mean that's how the Bengals got here, right? Yeah. They hit on their draft picks, Burrow, Chase, Mixon, 100%. and they also capitalized on those B
0: level free, free agents. And, and and that's where Joe, you know, Joe Douglas really loves to live in the B B level free agency. I can see them, you know, making a splash, at, at trying to get one top tier guy, but he's going to live in that B level range, so he just has to hit on those guys. And you spoke about it, you know, the Bengals defense, more specifically, like. They hit on almost all of their B level free agency. Hilton, like
1: Hendrickson,
0: yeah, DJ Reader, um, Mike Hilton, Eli Apple, Eli Apple, who Awuze. hates New York, <laughs> yeah, Abuze play with Von Bell. Mm-hmm. Um, these are the guys that are, Pratt. These are the guys that came in and played really well this year. And they weren't the biggest names out there in free agency but they came kids come together and played really well together on defense. Now Trey Henderson was their big free market for agency, but they hit on him. Like yeah. that was a knock it out the park for agency home run hit. So they've done a good job of, of being able to bring in, because it's literally a whole new defense. If you look at the last two years, this is a whole new defense that they have, but I've never seen a team that's been able to transition and not have played together for two or three years. They literally are all playing together for the first time this year. Mostly.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's been incredible what we've seen and, you know, Part of the reason that they're the biggest underdog in the last 25, 30 years to make the Super Bowl is because yeah. it's like, all right, well, we have to see a year of this on the experimental phase. Crazy. And then maybe next year they can compete. And yeah. I talked to Jesse Bates about that last year at Radio Row in Tampa. I said, Jesse, how's the uh, how's the forecast looking for the 2022 season? And he said, whoa. He said, what about next year? And you know what? <laughs> sure Jesse's enough, the one playing he this right. Sunday.
0: And, he, and the way he's been playing in the playoffs, oh, my God, he's going to get a bang. Yeah. The Jets. He's free. <laughs> this man can go get the ball. Go get him. Yeah, I
1: mean, you know, the Jets, some people are saying Kyle Hamilton out of Notre Dame is a... You can't a, take a safety number four wrong. Yeah. I, I, I think Kyle. you tweeted about this yeah, the other day. I, I
0: love <laughs> Kyle. Like, I watched this film. I love Kyle. I just, I'm just opposed to taking the safety that high. Um, and he's a game changer in the back end, right? You want a safety that can go get the ball. That's what the Jets have been missing. Mm-hmm. A safety that can go get the ball. But I think there's just too many, for sure, free agent hits. Especially at safety this year. You look at Tyron Matthew, Marcus Williams, um, Whitehead and Tampa Bay, Jesse Bates. Like, there's so many free agent good safeties this year. I see the Jets going to get one from free agent, Free agency. I don't think they spend a high draft pick on a safety that high, especially not in the top 10.
1: So, forget one high draft pick. The Jets have two in the Correct. top 10. And you mentioned, you know, the draft capital is great to have. At some point, you got to hit on it. Yeah. So, if you're in Joe D's shoes, who are you hitting on this year? You were just I mean, covering couple, the senior bowl, right? Yeah,
0: I was covering the senior bowl. There's a couple guys that, that come to mind. Um, I know everybody kind of been on me because Kayvon Thibodeau, I'd, I mean, I think he's going to be a good player. I wouldn't take him in the top five um, just from watching the film. Um, this guy, now he plays plays hard, extremely hard, um, but he usually only beats people with speed and power. I'd like to see him maybe use his hand uses a little bit more. He's a little stiff in the hips. Um, explosive player, though. Um a guy that I really like is the NC State offensive lineman. I can, I can be just dogging people. Like, yeah. I think he can come in day one, start at right tackle, and he actually has the flexibility to move in at guard. So now you're talking about if you move him to guard and say, you know, you have George Fett and and, and Becky can stay healthy at tackle with Elijah Vera Tucker and I can, you know, at guard. Like, you're talking about one of the best offensive lines in football. Definitely one of the most physically imposing offensive lines in football. And then, you know, at, at the 10th spot, I can see the Jets trading back, depending on if somebody's coming up to get a quarterback. Yeah. But if if, if they don't trade back, um, edge rusher could be David Ojabo if he's not gone by the Giants pick. You know, they could take him. A guy I really like uh, Jermaine Johnson. I know ten might be. Some people may say maybe high, but after watching this kid the singing bowl and then watching this film, he's gonna go in the top fifteen. Like he okay. he is that explosive, and he's come night and day as far as his hand usage. Um, that was his issue with Georgia. He didn't use his hands well. He beat everybody with speed to power. But when he came to the senior bojo, he opened up a bag of hand uses. <laughs> I'm talking about beating guys with inside swipe moves, outside spins, beat guys with a spin inside, beat guys with a counter cut, like – he, I don't think he lost one one on one in pass rush, every one on one pass rush that I watched. I think he, he practiced so well that he left after the Thursday practice. He didn't even stay after that. Because right? literally, there was nothing else he could do to, to improve his stock. Yeah. So, uh, you know, why risk just you're in, getting injured, you know, the last two days of practice? Get your but back. This, this kid, this kid, he has it. He has it for sure.
1: So I got to say, I hate that answer because Icom is the guy I want the Giants <laughs> to grab at five because God knows he we may, need him. He might
0: him, be gone at four, man. We, we need him.
1: So, looking at the Senior Bowl. Outside of Johnson, who impressed you the most? I, I mean, who was it? Was it Perriman out of Oklahoma had the insane week?
0: Oh, Perry and Winfrey. Perry and Winfrey, yeah. yes. oh, God. He, I love this kid, man. <laughs> he plays with so much juice, Joe, and he just has energy, and, and guys gravitate to that. Like, he was misused at Oklahoma. They had him over the center at the one technique. That's not what this kid is. He's a three technique getting in the back. I think Seattle Seahawks have to look at this guy in the second round. Like I, He's perfect for this system as far as creating havoc. And he has pass rush ability, and he has fluid hips. Um, now, he runs a little bit stiff, but as far as just get off and create havoc, he's one of the top guys. He, he earned a lot of money in this draft process. Another guy, Trey McBride. I don't think there's anything else he could have did at the Senior Bowl. I think he's going to be the first tight end taken off the board. Just smooth. Um, does a really good job of separating at the end at the top of the route to get open. And he's a willing blocker. Um, a guy I really also like was Jeremy Worker from Ohio State. Didn't get used a lot. Kind of like got used how George Kittle got used in Iowa. Uh, but this is a guy I think is going to run like a 4-5, four, 4-6. Four, and oh, he's wow. got some speed. And he's separated from guys at the Senior Bowl. And he is a, a physical blocker. So uh, that's something that the Jets need. And you see what George Kittle does in San Francisco in that offense. Not only in the catching game, but in the blocking game. is really big. So those three guys are guys that I really looked at that, that I think made some headway. Christian Wade, obviously, from North Dakota State big physical receiver, mm-hmm. but is also pretty nimble and, and, and can get in and out of breaks for a big guy. Does a really good job getting in and out of breaks. He's a big target that the Jets could, could use. They don't have a really big receiver. That I mean, Denzel Mims is big, and we'll see what happens with him going forward if the Jets potentially trade him or they keep him and give him one more you know chance to become a guy. But I think the Jets need a true number one receiver. They've been linked to Drake London, who I think is another big physical receiver that I would love the Jets to get because, you know, that's a best friend for a quarterback, a guy that can go up and get the ball, especially in the red zone. You yeah. just don't have that right
1: now. No, Moore's great, and he's fast as lightning and has yeah. great hands, but London for those jump balls. Exactly. And if they trade back with that 10th pick, he's a guy you maybe can get around 15, yeah, exactly. 16. Billy no is drafting in that, uh, in that area, and they're they've gonna, got a lot of capital. definitely
0: get a receiver for sure.
1: So, yeah, that, that could be a, a potential trade partner for the Jets if they want to move back a little bit. So, my man, look, I got to have you back on before the draft because yeah. I could break down these prospects all day with all you. All day, man. <laughs> but we are here for Super Bowl 56, yeah. and so I got to know, I know you, you're good buddies with Carlos Dunlap, spent a lot of time with Cincinnati. Yeah. What wins in this game? Is it talent that the LA Rams have, yeah. or is it toughness that's, that the Cincinnati, I mean, Cincinnati Bengals have? the
0: Bengals have a lot of talent, too, though. That's yeah, the thing. no doubt, and no doubt. I've gone back and forth in every show I've done this week, I've... I've tried to figure out if I'm going to just stay pat with my pig. I picked the Rams to win this game just because of the experience. Mm-hmm. And um, that's the one thing that Aaron Donald missing from his career. Like, he literally has gotten every defensive, you know, trophy or statistic possible known to man for a defensive lineman. I think this is the one thing missing from his trophy case. I think Matthew Stafford, this is why he was brought in, right? This is why the Rams gave up so much draft capital because they're in a win-now mode. Like, they traded away picks for Von Miller, traded away picks for Jalen Ramsey. I just think they're a team that's a little bit more experienced. Um, but then again, the Bengals could be a team of destiny. Like we see like the Giants in 07, they were a team of destiny. Yes, sir. Um, the Bengals have just found a way to win. Gritty, tough. Again, you say all the B-level free agents they have on defense. They just go out there and play hard, man. And then we know the explosive weapons they have on offense. And to me, Joe Burrow is the, the most cool, calm, collective dude I've ever seen for a second year player yeah like this dude even in the divisional round when he was getting battered and beat up nine sacks and got hit multiple times besides those sacks oh yeah about 13 hits in that one he never showed frustration never batted an eye continued to play hard um I think his legs are going to be a big you know a big thing in this game because you know the Chiefs weren't able to get to him but that's a misconception they were got, got after him a lot they just couldn't bring him down. So I think his athletic ability, especially when you're running from Aaron Donald, you know, Von Ron Miller, Miller yeah. Leonard Floyd, Greg Gaines, like it's going to be big for him because we know this is going to be a mismatch for this Bengals offensive line. This Rams defensive line is going to get after them. And I'm real interested to see how defensive coordinator Raheem Morris comes out game plan-wise just because of all the weapons they have on the outside at receiver. Does he manage a Mark Chase? Does he, with Jalen uh, Ramsey, does he, you know, bracket or does he man him with T Higgins and bracket Jamar Chase. So it'll be interesting to see uh guy. Troy reader has struggled in coverage. I'm looking to see if the Cincinnati Bengals, you know, exploit that in the middle of the field. They move Jamar Chase more in the slot or when the Rams go, man, does Joe Mixon take advantage of that? Cause he's a really good um, back catching the ball out of the backfield. So there's so mm-hmm. many storylines in this game. And I think, to me, one of the most important storylines that I haven't really heard anybody talk about, I think, I think it's the run game from Cincinnati, right? Uh, teams that have been able to run the ball on the Rams, that's where the Rams' defenses struggle. We saw it twice versus San Francisco earlier in the season. We saw it versus the Arizona Cardinals earlier in the season. Um, they came out with a different game plan in the NFC Championship game. They literally line up in like a 5-1-4. Like five defensive linemen, because t- essentially count Von Miller and Leonard Floyd is defensive end. Absolutely, so yeah. So they had four down, plus those two guys on the outside. Like, I had never seen anything <laughs> like that, Joe. Like, it was it was crazy. So they were going to make sure they stopped the run, and that's what they did. Sean Robinson was unheralded in that game. I mean, from the very first snap, Joe, in the NFC Championship game, he was asserting himself in the run game. He, he, it looked like he put it on himself that, like, the 49ers are not going to run the ball on us like they did the last two times. And he took it personally. But he also gave them some juice in the pass rush game as far as speed to power. And pushing the pocket, so there's so many storylines. And then you look at defensive coordinator Lou Anarumo. Uh, he's done a good job switching things up in the AFC Championship game. He was playing his patented cover two, cover four, playing the same, making you know the Chiefs matriculate the ball down the field. Mm-hmm. Second half, he goes man and two man and drops eight though with it sometimes, and only rushes three with Sam Hubbard being a spy with Patrick Mahomes. And the Chiefs just didn't adjust. So it's it's going to be a good chess match. To see Sean McVay, Lua Romo, and then also to see Coach Taylor versus, you know, defensive coordinator Raheem Morris.
1: You know, those in-game adjustments, that's why the Rams are where they are and why the Bengals are where they are. 100%. But I want to ask you my last question is about Raheem Morris and yeah. about other incredible black coaches yeah. in the NFL. Because when this offseason began, I made a list of the top ten available coaches. In my opinion, seven of them were black. Yeah. One black coach gets hired, <laughs> and it's a guy who wasn't even on that list. Yeah. Leger, we, we know about the lawsuit going on right now with Brian Flores suing three teams plus the NFL. Yeah, What's your take on all of this and the lack of diversity among NFL head coaches?
0: Yeah, I mean, we're talking about this. We can talk about the Rooney Rule and what it was meant for. It was meant for to give equal opportunities to minorities and blacks when it came to getting hired for head coaching and GM, you know, positions. But it essentially sometimes has become just something that teams use as a checkbox, to check off mm-hmm. um you know, I've been on shows all week. The last two weeks, talking about this, and uh, first and foremost, I think a way that we could push the needle so more blacks and more minorities get the opportunity is we get some minority owners into the NFL. And yeah, there's rumor there's two candidates for the Denver, you know, to buy the, the Denver franchise. So we'll see how that plays out. Uh, hopefully, that can push the needle and maybe get some more minorities and blacks opportunities. And then at the quality control level, um, one of one of my solutions was. Instead of three, and for people that don't know, quality control coaches, there's one in each phase of the game. There's one of the special teams, offense, and defense. Instead of only having three, right, have six, and have one of those guys be a minority at each position. That way, when a defensive coordinator or offensive coordinator gets a head coaching job, they can't take every coach from that staff because the head coach is going to block some of that. He wants to keep some of his staff, right, and they're under contract. But he can take some of those quality control coaches and make them position coaches, and he can take maybe – you know the running back coach to make him the offensive coordinator. So now, when that offensive coordinator becomes the head coach, he can make that his receiver coach, who was a quality control coach, he can make him the offensive coordinator. Yeah, and that way we have, you know, a bigger, you know, bigger vast of, of blacks and minorities having the opportunity to elevate a lot faster.
1: Yeah, I, I love the idea. And, you know, I think one of the most disheartening things from this past week is, like, you look at Houston, and ultimately they hire Lovey Smith. Now, whether or not that hire was made for the right reasons is to be determined. I just hope it's not a staff gap. Cause yeah, you literally, like David
0: Culley was a year ago. Uh, you literally keep the same staff from the guy that put that staff together, but you just promote the D.C. to head coach like it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's tough.
1: But, you know, the unfortunate thing about this whole process was that Josh McCown, you know, the golden boy in Houston, they've wanted him for two years. Yeah. A black player would never get that opportunity to just go straight from, from retirement yeah. to coaching. Yeah. And that's, that's where the change needs to be made. It's like you've got guys like enemy and Byron Leftwich. I mean, enemy has been doing this five years at the Crazy. highest level. Crazy. And, you know, they say, all right, he doesn't interview well. Look at his damn offense. That, that's the interview to me.
0: I, but people kill me with this joke because they always say, like, he doesn't call the plays. Well, Andy Reid didn't call the plays before he was the coach at Green Bay, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Mike McDaniel technically doesn't call the plays in San Fran. Kyle Shanahan does. Yeah. Right? And we've heard he's a great offensive line. I played there, so I know Mike McDaniel. is off. He's a great coach. I'm glad Miami hired him. I think he's going to do an amazing job with Tua. I think he's exactly what Tua needed. But you got to stop using that narrative of this guy isn't calling. Well, a lot of coaches get hired and haven't called plays. So, like, that absolutely makes those. Zach Taylor didn't call no damn plays in L.A. Like, he was just a quarterback's coach. And Kevin O'Connell isn't calling him, and he just got hired. Exactly. So they got to stop using that narrative of Eric bien doesn't call the plays. Andy Reid does. There's been multiple coaches that don't call plays, and they've been able to be elevated to head coaching jobs. So, I mean, you've heard all the players come out, and bien favorite, all the Kansas City players. You heard Patrick Mahomes. Travis Kelsey, Tariq Hill, they vouch for this guy. They know what he does weekend to weekend out in the meetings. So, I mean, we'll see, man. Only time will tell if there'll be true change.
1: Yeah, well, Leger, look, I mean, we've already gone over 20 minutes. You're already my longest interview of the week. (laughs) It's all good. I could go another hour with you, so I can't wait for the next time we have you on in a few months, man. Of course. Thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) We'll be right back here on Serralo Sports Talk. We're back here on Sorallo Sports Talk and joining the show. He's one of my favorite guests of all time. He is the current Chief Trends Officer at Caesar Sportsbook. It's Trey Wingo. Trey, thanks so much for joining the show. Hey, man. Great to be with you again. How are you? I'm doing great. It's great to have you on. You know, the last time that we talked, you were gearing up for the NFL Draft Special. On Fox, which was a wild success, you had Eli yeah. Manning on yeah. there with you.
2: That was fun. Shortly
1: after the deal with Caesars comes through, and how has this first year been? Obviously, sports betting has taken such a prominent role in the industry.
2: Uh, it's been great. Uh, it's been a remarkable year, um, and uh, you know, trying to put it in perspective, it's just been it's just been incredible. And the thing about Caesars, which has been so good, is that so many of the guys that I work with at Caesars, I used to work with at ESPN. Yeah. And uh, for me, it's a bunch of the same sort of uh, people doing at a at a different place, but sort of the same familiar stuff that uh, we've always done. So that's that's been a, a, a real blessing, and it's great been great work with a guy like Kenny again that I haven't worked with for years. So it's it's just been phenomenal. It's absolutely been great.
1: Now, your title, Chief Trends Officer, <laughs> have uh, have you ever heard of that title before? What the hell does that entail, Chief Trends Officer?
2: Um. It's a great question. So when we put the deal together, they said, what what should we call you? And I said, I offered Grand Master of Time, Space, and Dimension. And they said no. <laughs> so I said, do whatever you want. And they said, how do you feel about brand ambassador and trends officer? I said, fine. The whole point of that being, they want me to do basically what I did all those years on Golic and Wingo or the draft or NFL Live, which is essentially talk about football and the things that I see in the game. I'm not the, I'm not the odds guy. I'm not the sharp. I'm the guy that helps explain why the odds are the way they are. Like, for example, why are the Rams four and a half point favorites on Super Bowl Sunday? Well, they have a better team from top to bottom. Yeah. But this Bengals team is fascinating because under Joe Burrow, when he plays, the Bengals are seven and three as underdogs this year. If they win on Super Bowl Sunday, he'll be eight and three. Only one other quarterback has ever gone eight and three in a season as an underdog and ended up as a Super Bowl champion. That was Tom Brady in 2001. Super Bowl 36. So this is sort of the rarefied air we're talking about when we, deal with, uh, when we deal with what Joe Burrow is trying to accomplish.
1: Now, if you look at Joe Burrow's MVP odds, and I, yeah. I, I know you're not the sharp, yeah. but is there more value, in your opinion, to a guy like Burrow? Because if they do pull off the upset, four and a half points... That's a pretty big underdog in the Super Bowl. Yeah, if they pull that off, you have to think that it's going to be the clutch quarterback taking home the trophy. Well, 11 so
2: eleven of the last fifteen MVPs have been quarterbacks. I mean, like, to me, it's almost become a default position, and like the quarterback has to be exceedingly bad, or someone has to be off the charts good for it not to be a quarterback. Like the year Julian Edelman won the MVP, and the last time the Rams were here, and the Rams lost thirteen to three. Edelman had like ten catches in that game. They scored thirteen points. Like, okay, the Rams came into that game averaging, I think, 33 points per game. They scored three. How is a defensive player not the MVP of that game? Right. Right? Like, I I feel like they just find a way to give it to an offensive player. Like, Von Miller was so off the charts good uh, in Super Bowl 50, and Peyton was so off the charts average (laughs) that they couldn't give it to the quarterback. I guess they could have given it to to the running back. But, you know, I I just feel like it's a default thing. Even last year, again, I'm not – hating on tom brady i'm with you you had a chiefs team that had scored at least 33 points in every playoff game that patrick mahomes had started and finished and they didn't score a touchdown how is tom brady the mvp of that
1: game not devin white vita vea Shaq
2: barrett yeah like one of those guys like i just think it's this ah, give it to a quarterback Super Bowl 36 we talked about that brady had 145 passing yards in that game that was the rams second incarnation of the greatest show on turf and somehow brady got no he had the game-winning drive to set up field goal. I understand that, but the rest of the game he was not that good. Go back and look at it. He had 145 passing yards, yeah. and somehow he was the MVP of the game. So I just feel like it's this default position. So yeah, uh, I think it would be a good, a great prop bet. I have a couple other ones that I like better, actually.
1: Let's let's hit him. Let's hit them. What do you, I got the sheet right here, courtesy of Caesars Sportsbook. So let's hit these props, Trey.
2: Well, one of them is we haven't had a safety in a while. Mm-hmm. Okay, we haven't had a safety since Super Bowl 48. Uh, first snap of the game. Broncos over the head of Peyton Manning in the end zone. Seahawks won on to roll 43-8. to eight. That's the longest stretch we've gone without a safety in Super Bowl history. So you get plus 800 odds that we have a safety scored in this game. I like I like that prop bet a lot. The other one I really like, the a little longer odds, it's called the fridge prop, for okay. lack of a better term. Uh, Caesars Palace in 1986 put up wood refrigerator perry score a touchdown in Super Bowl 20 for the Bears against the Patriots, and he did in the third quarter. And to Mike Ditka's undying shame, Walter Payton did not score a touchdown in that game, and he regretted it as long as he's lived. We only had two players score defensively, or two defensive players score a touchdown in a Super Bowl. Fridge and Mike Vrabel, who's done it twice. In Super Bowls 38 and 39, he caught a touchdown pass from Tom Brady. So that's a really good play to me because I think in this day and age, we have so many gifted athletes that play on the defensive side of the ball. Like, you throw a trick play in there, like the Philly special, and bring in Aaron Donald off the edge, or Jalen Ramsey, go up, get a jump ball. I
1: think that might be a fun one. It works. It's definitely a fun one because, look, it's low risk, high reward. Correct. And as your former co-host, Mike Golick Jr., reminds us all weekly, there's nothing we love more in football more than a thick six. Exactly right. (laughs) right. Give me a a fatty scoring, and I'm really good. (laughs) I love it. You know, Trey, you mentioned when we were talking about uh, Von Miller winning the MVP over Peyton Manning. Peyton was bad in that Super Bowl. I mean, he was exceedingly injured. Was, he was average. He was at the end of his career. Yeah.
2: You know, he was just like, the only reason that game was only a 14-point game was Peyton Manning was quarterback. Exactly. And I love Peyton Manning. He's part of the Caesars family. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. First ballot Hall of Famer. We know all that. Like, they should have won by
1: 30. Yeah. And so I want to ask you with that said, how fun is it to work with the Mannings? You worked with Eli yeah. uh, ahead of the draft on Fox last year. Yep. Yeah. You've worked with Peyton, Archie, too, with Caesars. Just yeah. how fun is football's first family? It, they're great, and, and it's
2: really fun. But here's how you know like that commercial we shot was next level when
1: I didn't care whether Peyton or Eli or Archie was there, but Halle Berry was there. <laughs> that, that's, that's how you
2: know it was a really good day.
1: You're going to get me in trouble with that, Trey. No, know, no, no, I, no. My, my girlfriend's also my producer uh, here, and listen, we all love Halle's uh, part in that ev- commercial.
2: Everybody, uh, Halle, like, I, I've been married for 34 years,
1: and my wife was like, good job. So, we're all good there. I mean, Tally Barry, what are you going to do? Exactly. Exactly. Trey, looking at this game, yeah. the Bengals four and a half point dogs, they've been incredible as underdogs. They've won every game that they've been, and I know technically that they're the home team, but they've won every game that they've been a road dog in outright since week 2 in Chicago. Yep. So, in your opinion, is the value clearly on Cincinnati money line or are you a take the points guy?
2: I take the points. Um, I would take the points because I mentioned the thing about Burrow. Um, and I, I also just think that the Rams have something that the, that the Bengals don't in this game, in a bad way. They understand mm-hmm. failure. Like, Sean McVay was here a few years ago and failed. Aaron Donald was here a few years ago and failed. Matthew Stafford's entire career in Detroit, not great. Like, it's taken them forever. For lack of a better term, the Bengals are young and dumb in the best possible way. Yeah. Like, in the best way. We don't know. We don't care. We'll just show up and win. They remind me a lot of the 92 Cowboys, and I'm not saying that they're going to go win three Super Bowls in four years like Dallas, but nobody expected Dallas except Dallas to walk into that game against the 49ers on the road in the NFC Championship game and win the first of their three Super Bowls the week after. The Bengals, if the if the Rams start thinking about things, they're in trouble. The Bengals don't think about things, and Joe Burrow doesn't care. Nothing affects him. Um, he's never going to have the best stats, but if you give him a chance to win a game, he's going to do it.
1: Yeah. I said it yesterday on my show. You know, the Bengals, they've got this just loosey-goosey approach. And more than anything, you know, the Rams have talent. Six, seven Hall of Famers on that roster. The Bengals have balls. yeah, And that could be the deciding factor in this one. So, Trey, I want to flip this to your career because you've always got something in the works. Whether it's, you know, the past year with Caesars or Fox for the draft prior to that. What's next? There's got to be a new project, something coming up for Trey Wingo. Yeah, we've got a lot uh, going
2: on here. I'm still doing the work for PFN. I write for Facebook. I've got some more PGA Tour uh, events that I'll be calling, which is really going to be fun. Uh, i got the podcast, Half Forgotten History. Which is amazing. Uh, Thank you very much. We're dropping one today with Torrey Holt. Perfect timing. Uh, Rams receiver, who was part of the greatest show on turf that won Super Bowl 34 in his rookie year, by the way. Very similar to Jamar Chase and what's going on there. Um, And there's... There's something that I can't tell you about yet, but should be happening very soon, uh, which will be a lot of fun. It's going to be something I'll be doing with a guy that I used to work with for many years at ESPN, and we we'll I have the opportunity to work together again, and hopefully I'll be able to make that announcement sometime in the next couple of days.
1: Well, you know how to make everyone stay tuned, so we can't <laughs> wait to see that announcement. By the way, your show, Half Forgotten History, yeah. is one of the most entertaining shows out Thank there. You. I mean, the Victor Cruz episode's phenomenal, Yeah. but there's just one guest too, and you've had him on multiple times, your chemistry is amazing. Yeah. What's what's the story behind your bromance with Mark Schlery? Um I, I listen. He was my work wife, for lack of a better <laughs> term,
2: for 16 years at ESPN. We just hit it off, you know. And uh, whenever he would come up to Bristol, he'd hang out at our house. Our kids grew up together. Uh, we'd go on vacations together, go play golf. Um, we just hit it off. I, it's there's like there's no other way to describe it. You know, we just it worked. Yeah. And uh, the guy that I was talking about, we might be having another little announcement with Mark and I awesome um, coming along so yeah we're excited about that and hopefully that will get put to bed very soon but um, I it's it's always been great and you know for a while he was at Fox and I was at ESPN and now none of that matters anymore so yeah absolutely yeah, and, and we all on. love the picture
1: you post for his birthday every year flexing straight <laughs> cut man straight cut you know, ran it. the first time I had him on I asked him about his journey to the NFL and he goes mm-hmm. let's be very honest about something I mm-hmm. hit the genetic lottery
2: right. and his dad is crazy like his yeah. dad uh, they call him poolside because when he was playing at Idaho like, he would go on every road game, and they'd be at the hotel, and they'd say, Mark, check out your dad. He's out there doing push-ups at the pool. Cool. Like, at 80 years old, I think he's still uh, benched
1: 300 pounds. That's absolutely he hit insane. He the genetic lottery. His that's, dad,
2: poolside is not growing.
1: That's unreal. Trey Wingo, the chief trends officer at Caesars Sportsbook, man. It was great having you on. Thanks so much for joining the Always show. Always a pleasure, brother. We'll be right back here on Sorallo Sports Talk. It is time for my final word here on this episode of Sorallo Sports Talk, day three from the LA Convention Center ahead of Super Bowl 56 and as promised I've got my five pro football Hall of Fame finalists that I'm going to pick before tomorrow's announcement to see who gets the call to Canton but before I do that if you enjoyed this episode if you enjoyed the guests I mean tremendous guests all day tremendous guests all week make sure you share this episode whether it's straight from Spotify Apple Pods or wherever you're listening or the Instagram links and videos I've been posting. Make sure you click that share button. Get this show out there. Now let's see who I think deserves to go to Canton, who I think will get the call tomorrow. We're starting off with a wide receiver. Reggie Wayne has been passed each of the past two years on the Hall of Fame, and it's about time Reggie Wayne gets the call. Any way you slice it, he is one of the 10 best wide receivers In the history of football, he is 10th all-time in receiving yards. And if you look at those receiving yard leaders, let's see where Reggie falls. He's 10th. The top nine guys on that list, only two of the top nine are not in the Hall of Fame. Now, Larry Fitzgerald is second all-time in receiving yards. He's not eligible for another three years. And the guy who is 8th on that list, just two spots ahead of Reggie, Steve Smith, he was a first ballot guy this year, didn't make the finalists' cut, which is absolutely stacked. Steve Smith will be a Hall of Famer. Now let's look behind Reggie, because going further, Reggie is only the third member of the top ten who is not in the Hall of Fame, only the second eligible member who's not. Well, out of the top 13 guys all-time in receiving yards, there are nine Hall of Famers. So that means four aren't. Larry, not eligible yet. Steve Smith was first ballot. Reggie, third try, should get in. Andre Johnson, right behind Reggie Wayne, about 150 yards behind him. He's 11th all-time. Andre Johnson is one of my other picks to make the Hall of Fame tomorrow. Him and Reggie, 10th and 11th all-time in receiving yards. There was no one more dominant than Andre Johnson at the wide receiver position from about 2006 Till 2010. Andre Johnson and Calvin Johnson, who got inducted into the Hall of Fame last year as a first ballot inductee, dominated the wide receiver position in football for about five years, if not longer. And even though Canton has not been kind to wide receivers, I mean Chris Carter had to wait too damn long to get the call. I think two out of this year's five inductees are wideouts, Reggie Wayne and Andre Johnson. And I'm gonna say that another position gets two inductees, and that is the edge rusher defensive end position where I think DeMarcus Ware and Jared Allen are due to get the call. Only 15 men in the history of the NFL. Now, of course, sacks was not always an official stat, but since it has become one, only 15 men have ever recorded 130 sacks in their career or more. DeMarcus Ware and Jared Allen are both on the list. I thought Allen should have made it last year. He did not. DeMarcus Ware is another first-year of eligibility guy like Andre Johnson. Unlike Andre Johnson, DeMarcus Ware has the ring to go with his extraordinary career. Of course, got one with Denver Super Bowl 50. I think that Ware and Jared Allen should both be getting the call to the Hall. And this takes me to my final pick for this year's Hall of Fame ballot. Now, Look, there's more great wideouts on this list. You have guys like Torrey Holt, of course, who it would be fitting to make it while the Rams are in the Super Bowl. You've got offensive linemen, Tony Basselli who I talked about last week with Ross Tucker. Willie Anderson, the Bengals' stud offensive tackle. And just like Torrey Holt, it would be fitting for Anderson to get the call while his Bengals are in the big game. You've got Devin Hester, the best return specialist to ever do it. Patrick Willis, a guy who... Only played seven, eight years in the league, but was as dominant an inside linebacker as you could find in football for his peak. It's a tough call. I'm giving it to Tony Baselli. If you listen to last week's episode with Ross Tucker, you know I think we're two years overdue for Tony to get the call to Canton. He had a short career, kinda of, kind of like Patrick Willis, who I just mentioned, but there was no left tackle in football more dominant from nineteen ninety-six to two thousand and two than Tony Baselli. And He's way overdue. He's about 15 years overdue. Look, it's not his fault that his shoulders were torn up and gave out on him after less than a decade in the league. I mean, look, the average career span in the NFL is only about three years. So for Boselli to go out there and play eight years and eight of the most dominant years you could ask for at the left tackle position, I think it's time he gets recognized. I think it's time that Reggie Wayne, Andre Johnson, Jared Allen, DeMarcus Ware, and now finally – Tony Bacelli enter the Hall of Fame. And just like that, day three from Radio Row is wrapping up. This episode of Serralo Sports Talk is up. It's over. It's out of here. We've got great guests lined up for the rest of the week. Two more shows to go. I can't wait. I know you can't either. So if you like it, share it. I'll see you tomorrow.
0: Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform.